Um, we're starting a new series this morning uh, in 1 Kings, which is in the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at chapter 17 in particular. And that text is printed for you uh, in the bulletin. Uh, if you have a Bible, you could turn there as well, 1 Kings 17. We're going to be looking at this prophet named Elijah for the next few weeks. As you're turning there, I, I want you to think, your, think to yourself, um, when someone is in trouble, at what point do they no longer deserve to be rescued? When someone is in trouble, at what point do they no longer deserve to be rescued? You know, this year a lot of hurricanes and major storms and things have moved through, and there's always like the really dire warning that says, if you do not evacuate now, we will not rescue you. What about the people that, that don't evacuate now? Do they deserve to be rescued even after that warning? This is a fair question to be rattling around in our minds as we begin this series on Elijah and look at God's people in 1 Kings. At what point does someone no longer deserve to be rescued? All right, what's going on in, in the Bible at this point? when we enter 1 Kings. Uh, so we're in the Old Testament, First and Second Kings. This recounts the people of God, Israel, their history when they had kings. It was during the monarchy when all these different kings uh, were in power. And their mission as a people, as, as the nation of Israel, was that God would bless them so that they could be a blessing to other nations. So the primary job for Israel was that they would so be captivated with who God is that they would show what God is like to the other nations around them. They were blessed so that they would be a blessing to others. This was their primary role. And the king over the nation was to embody this, to show all the Israelites exactly how this should look. The king was to be the faithful Israelite that modeled for his people how to be a light to the nations. That was their mission, but they failed at it time and time again. And as you read through, you'll see the failure over and over again. Our text in particular, chapter 17, the, Israel, the, the nation of Israel is a mess. Uh, the, the kingdom has divided at this point. Uh, false gods were being worshipped. This was not a good time. The current king, King Ahab, was not a good king. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But it was a total mess. They'd been warned time and time again, but they kept disobeying. Did they still deserve to be rescued? 1 Kings 17, beginning in verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the, to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. The word of the Lord came to him and said, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. 
when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, till the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. This is God's word. I'm going to pray and ask him to be with us as we consider it this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you've spoken to us through it. And we ask this morning that you would give us ears to hear it and hearts that would understand it and eyes to see it. Lord, we need help knowing who you are. And so we humbly ask that you would show yourself to us this morning. Lord, you know what we bring into this room, the things that are heavy on our hearts and in our minds. And we pray that you would meet us in the midst of that and reveal yourself to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I came across a story uh, a few years ago of this family that that really loved to sail. uh, And they loved the adventure of sailing so much that they sold their home and they loaded up on a sailboat and set out on a 36-month-long sailing journey from Mexico to New Zealand. Here's the deal with this family, though. Their two children were three years old and one-year-old. They had a three-year-old and a one-year-old. As you might imagine, there were a lot of people who warned them and said, I don't think this is a great idea to go on a 36-month-long sailing journey with your three-year-old and your one-year-old. A lot of people warned them against it, but they decided it was a good idea, and so they did it. And it actually started off pretty great for the first 1,200 miles of their journey. 1,200 miles in the ocean. It was great. But then the worst case scenario happened. Um, Their daughter uh, became ill and got a fever and the medicine that they had for her wouldn't help her. It wouldn't do the job. So they had to get help for her. So the first thought would be, well, let's um, sail the ship back to land. So they start to do that, but the ship breaks down and they're no longer able to steer it. So their daughter is ill. The ship stopped working. They had an emergency phone on the boat. So they go to use the phone and call for help. And sure enough, the phone is not working. Last resort, there's a thing on uh, boats, apparently, as I read, called an EPIRB, or E-P-I-R-B, which stands for an Emergency Positioning Indicating Radio Beacon. Now, the stakes are really high when you're using this beacon. As I understand this, um, you press the button and it sends your location to the Coast Guard for immediate rescue. 
It doesn't send a message. You can't communicate a message through it. And they don't send a confirmation back. But all it does is it sends this message saying, we need immediate life-saving rescue right now. And so, as you can imagine, if you push the button, you better need immediate life-saving rescue because the fleet is about to come. And so the father uh, pushes the button, he activates the beacon, and again, no confirmation message, so they're just like waiting in total silence. But sure enough, eight hours later, the message has been relayed and rescue comes. The Coast Guard flies in, they drop down the supplies, the crew comes and helps them, they give medicine to the child, they airlift the family to safety. Now, when this family gets back to the States, they faced a firestorm of criticism, became a national story. Parents were upset, why would you do this to your kids? Why would you put your family in this kind of situation? You were warned about this, and they were. And yet they were still rescued. Reading the Old Testament, this question of whether or not someone deserves rescue should come up in our minds time and time again. I mean, the people of God, they knew what they should and should not be doing. And God had kindly warned them time and time again. And yet, they didn't listen. Did they deserve rescue in the midst of this? This is especially true when Elijah comes on the scene in 1 Kings. One writer described the situation this way. Listen to how he says this. Every light had been extinguished. Every voice of divine testimony was hushed. Spiritual death was spread over everything. And it looked as though Satan had indeed obtained mastery of the situation. Idolatry had become the state religion. The worship of Baal was the order of the day. Wickedness was rampant on every side. All right, surely a people like this does not deserve rescue. Or do they? What about us when we do the same thing over and over again? What do we deserve? I want us to consider God's rescue this morning. I want to ask three questions. Why do we need God's rescue? How does God rescue? And who does God rescue? Why do we need God's rescue? How does God rescue? And who does he rescue? All right, first question, why do we need God's rescue? And let's start by asking it this way. Why did the Israelites need God's rescue? Let's dig into the text a little bit here. All right, just before our passage, in 1 Kings 16, it's describing this list of kings, and it talks about King Ahab. Here's some of the highlights on King Ahab. He was evil. It says he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It says that he worshipped this other god, Baal, because he married this woman from another nation that worshipped another god. So he took up her god and started worshipping this god, Baal. He ended up building an altar to this god in Samaria. Then at the end of chapter 16, it says that King Ahab did more to provoke the Lord to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. This is disastrous for God's people. Remember, King Ahab was their leader. He was their king. And the king of God's chosen people was to model for them what it looked like to be a faithful Israelite. And as it went for the king, so it went for the people. So the Israelites followed him in this began worshiping the false god, Baal. Israel desperately needed rescue. 
All right, it's easy to read an account like this and, and feel really disconnected from it. Like it's this history of these people, they're like building physical altars to a different God. Many of us don't really have categories for this. So let's ask this question. That was why the Israelites needed rescue. Why do we need rescue? We need rescue because the human heart is no different now than it was then. Now, I don't want to assume that that you agree with this idea that we need to be rescued. Um, To be in need of rescue means that we can't help ourselves, that we can't do it on our own, and we need help from outside of ourselves. And we really don't like this feeling. I know I don't like this feeling. Uh, A few years ago, my wife Erin, her car got a flat tire. And I thought, you know, this is a great opportunity for me to show that I'm the type of guy that knows how to do stuff like change a tire. Great opportunity. And so I went and got a can of this stuff called Fix-A-Flat. And I really had no idea how this stuff works. But it's sort of like magic. Essentially, you you spray a can of this stuff into a flat tire and it fixes the flat. It just makes it not be flat anymore. I have no idea how that works, and in this case, it did not actually work. And so I threw the can away. I was like, all right, I'm going to do this the real way. So I get the spare out. I put the spare on. Thankfully, this happened in our driveway at our house, and so, you know, pretty easy place to do it. And I get the spare on. I'm like, okay, I'm going to drive the car and go get it fixed for real now. And so I get about two houses down. I can still see my house in plain view right in front of my neighbor's house, and the spare blows out. And so I'm standing two houses away from my house, having tried to fix the flat in the spare tire, and I'm on the phone because I can't do it on my own, calling for rescue. And sure enough, the tow truck comes and takes my wife's car away to fix it. The Bible says that our problem with sin is so bad that we cannot help ourselves. We need rescue from outside of ourselves. Now, maybe we don't physically build an altar to another God, but our hearts are so quick to be devoted to and captivated by so many things other than the Lord. This is called idolatry. Idolatry, it's when we center our lives on something other than the Lord. Idolatry is taking the created things of this world, even good things, and making them into ultimate things. Idolatry is taking things in life that were meant to be on the periphery and forcing them to the center. Idolatry is when we tighten our grip down on something and make it the most important thing in our lives. Our hearts are prone to this. Kids, think about it this way. As you go through your week in school, uh, what's the most important thing on your mind? Could be a lot of different things. Could be getting really good grades, maybe listening really well to your teachers. Uh, could be the sports that are awaiting you after school. It might be a club activity. Could be a number of different things. Um, when I think back to when I was in school, especially middle school, um, the most important thing to me was to get people to like me. Uh, sixth grade at Plaza Middle School, um, there was a, a lunch table sort of off to the side against the wall. And this table was where all the cool kids sat. And I wanted more than anything to be accepted by those cool kids and sit with them at that table. This idea of being accepted by them became central to me. And it started to shape and guide all that I did. It shaped the clothes that I wore, the hobbies that I took up. 
It became central and guiding in my life. That's what our idols do. And adults, this is not unique to kids, right? Uh, You know, getting the house in the right neighborhood. Um, Being caught up on all the New York Times bestsellers. Being caught up on all the new Netflix shows and having a really thoughtful and nuanced opinion about them. We could go on and on, but we're often just trying to earn the acceptance of others because we've made that the central guiding thing in our lives. What idols do you see in your own heart? And that's a great question to ask a close friend or roommate or a spouse. You know, our hearts are sort of like the arcade game where you put in the quarter and it has a claw that drops down it can pick up like a stuffed animal or a toy or something like that or a piece of candy that's been there for six years, right? Our hearts are always trying to grasp onto something to make it the central guiding thing in our lives. I wonder what it is for you, what false gods are you tempted to center everything on? For King Ahab and the Israelites, they centered themselves on Baal and they needed rescue from it. And for us, we center our lives on so many kinds of idols. This is why we need to be rescued. How does God do that? How does God rescue us? Well, as you can see in our passage, and you'll see in the weeks ahead, God does amazing things to rescue us. But he often does it through very normal people. You know, sometimes we just gloss over miraculous things in the Bible. We think, yeah, this is like, you know, it's just what the Bible says. We don't, but these are amazing, miraculous, supernatural things that God does. There's actually a note about that in the community group notes for this week for you to discuss. But God does supernatural, amazing things in this passage. Look at verse 1. He causes a drought. So Elijah tells King Ahab that a drought is coming, that there's not going to be any dew or rain for years. Now this is especially bold because King Ahab's god, Baal, was the god that supposedly controlled the weather. This was a direct challenge. A direct challenge. The thought was that Baal controlled the rains and was alive and active in the rainy season and was dormant and dead in the dry season. So he kind of came and went. And so Elijah is saying to King Ahab, hey, my God is alive, he says in verse 1, and he's in control of all of creation, and he's going to keep it from raining for a number of years. And sure enough, a drought ensues for three and a half years, a supernatural event that God did to show that he was Lord of all creation, that he had power over all things. He causes a drought. What else does he do? Verse 4, he provides food through ravens. So the Lord tells Elijah to travel to the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. And commentators say that, that this was an inhospitable place, that you wouldn't want to go here if you were trying to hide out and survive because there wasn't enough there to sustain you. Verse 4 says, You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Down in verse 6, And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Um, Up to this point in the Bible, of all the times that God had miraculously provided for his people, he had not yet done it this lavishly. Bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. God supernaturally provided this lavish food. This is amazing. What else does he do? He provides an endless supply of food. Okay, further down the passage, God tells Elijah to go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. 
Now, this was like Baal worship headquarters. He says, go to the heart of this idolatry, and I'm going to do amazing things through you. What does he do there? He comes across this widow gathering sticks. Elijah asks her for water, for bread, and she says, verse 12, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. She was preparing what she thought was her last meal for her and her son. They were materially at their end. They didn't have anything left. She thought it was her last meal. How does Elijah respond? Look at verse 13. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty till the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Y'all, this is amazing. This is amazing. She goes out to gather for what she thinks is her last meal. Put yourself in her shoes. A widow gathering food for the last meal for her and her son, thinking she's about to die. And God miraculously provides an unending supply to her. These are all supernatural, amazing things that God really did. Now, there's a temptation when we read this. There's a temptation to look at people like Elijah and say, Wow, that guy was amazing. He stood up to the king, provided food for the widow. You know what? I need to have more courage. I need to do more things like that. I need to be more like Elijah. And so we walk away from the text thinking, let's go out and be more like Elijah this week. But it is essential to see that it is God who is doing these amazing things. And God does these amazing things through normal people. Elijah was a normal guy. We don't know a lot about him. The New Testament actually speaks a good bit about him, which you're going to see in the weeks ahead. James, in particular, in chapter 5, says this about him. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was a person like us. One writer sort of lists how normal he was. He says he had no elaborate pedigree. He was not the spokesperson for an important group of people. Where he was from, Tishbe in Gilead, was a very fringe peripheral area of ancient Israel. He had no fame or notoriety, no political clout, no credentials, no academic degrees. Y'all, if he was here today, we probably wouldn't listen to him. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was a normal person. How is it then that God can do these amazing things through him? One commentator puts it this way. Elijah was the kind of man that he was because God is the kind of God that he is. The whole time it wasn't about Elijah and his greatness. It was always about God and his greatness. Our home back in Lexington, Kentucky, where we lived before moving here, had a chronically leaking basement. And so even when it rains like it is today, I just 
I get uh, flashbacks of our flooding basement. Um, it was especially problematic because our basement was finished and we had carpet and lots of kids' toys down there. Uh, one winter we had um, a really large snow. It snowed over a foot. And a few days later it got unseasonably warm. And so it actually caused a lot of like minor flooding around town. Um, and we had this gentle slope in our backyard that sloped back towards the house, which apparently is not ideal on your lot, as we learned. And so early Saturday morning, I walked down into my basement. The snow's melting like crazy outside, and there's just water flowing into my basement. Inches of water start building up. The carpet is soaked. I can see, like, children's toys floating by. It's the saddest scene. <laughs> Saturday morning, no place is open to call for help. There was this guy named Jody. Jody was a general handyman that had done some work for us. Very normal jobs, nothing too crazy. But I thought, you know, I'm just going to call Jody and see what he can do. I call Jody. Sure enough, he's like, I'm on it. I'm on my way. So he gets in his truck, drives through the snow, goes straight down into my basement. He like wades in the water in my basement. And I think he like hot wired the sump pump. So the sump pump stopped working. This is key to the story. The sump pump is the thing that's supposed to take water out of your basement. Well, it stopped working. And so it was flooding like crazy. So Jody is standing in water and is like putting wires together, hot wiring the sump pump, which I don't think is safe. I'm standing behind him trying to like step out of the water. But it was, it was miraculous what he was doing. I was in awe watching him like it was no big deal, uh, rig this thing. And sure enough, he got it working again. The sump pump came back on, started taking the water out of the house, and it was restored. And he just went home and like watched TV and had a normal Saturday after that. I was in awe of what he did. It was miraculous to me. It's easy to get this way when we read about miracles in the Bible. It's easy to lose sight of who the real hero of the story is. Y'all, the real hero of this story is the Lord and his rescue of his people. The Lord is the one who does amazing things. For some reason, he delights in using very normal people to accomplish these things. What about us? Do you think God can use you to forever change someone else's life? Or do you feel too normal? Uh, we tend to think of uh, not ourselves, but you know, maybe we know a few people. No, I, I know some great people. God can surely use those people, but not me. Can God actually use you to do something amazing to change someone else's life? You know, I'm a Christian, and up here today, because... When my older brother was in high school, he became a Christian. And in very normal, mundane ways, he just began living as a Christian around me. And he began loving me and talking to me in very normal, mundane ways. But God used it to drastically and dramatically change my life forever. The Bible is full of story after story, of very normal and actually pretty messy people doing amazing things. Because this is who God is. And this is how he works. Why do we need rescue? We need rescue because we center our hearts on idols rather than God. How does God rescue us? He does amazing things through very normal people. Who does God rescue? Who does God rescue? I remember a friend saying one time that we tend to approach God like we approach going to the dentist. Um, in between our regular dental checkups, if we're honest... We're 
probably brushing once a day, maybe twice. And we're certainly not flossing because who actually flosses, right? But then we have the appointment scheduled. And so like for three days leading up to our dentist appointment, suddenly dental hygiene is our new favorite hobby. We're like brushing four times a day, flossing to where our gums are bleeding. We've got the mouthwash out. We're using the whiteners. What are we doing? We're trying to clean ourselves up to go and show the dentist that, hey, I've got this. I've got it under control. Look at what I've done. We want to hear the dentist say, you know, you don't even really need to be here today. This is the best teeth I've seen all day. Does God only rescue those who can clean themselves up and show that they've got it under control? Thankfully not. Who do we see God rescue in this passage? First, we see that God rescues the down and out. He rescues the down and out. Look at verse 9. Who does God send Elijah to? To a widow. Not a high-ranking, socially connected, influential person. A widow in this day did not have this influential status in the community. As Elijah finds her in this passage, she's come to the complete end of herself. She thought her and her son were about to die. It's also important to know that she wasn't even an Israelite. She was an outsider. What does God do with outsiders who don't have any social power? He rescues them. He rescues them. Maybe you could relate to that feeling of of being an outsider. Like for as hard as you try, you just can't get yourself to fit in. For as hard as you try in your life, you just can't get things together. You can't get things under control like you hoped you could, like it seems like others can. You just feel like an outsider. What does God do with people like that? He rescues them. That's what he loves to do. God rescues the down and out. But there's more. There's another rescue taking place in this passage. God rescues those who don't deserve it. He rescues those who don't deserve it. In the Bible, you see God raised up prophets to speak to his people. Why did he do this? God raised up prophets to say hard things to his people because he loved them. We can all relate to this idea, right? If you have a close friend or a family member that's going astray in some way, you know that if you really love this person, you have to sit down with them and have a hard conversation because you can't let them continue to live the way they're living. Love means having the hard conversation. That's what the prophets would do. God would use them to have hard conversations, to say hard things to God's people because he loved them. God's ultimate goal in raising up Elijah was to speak truth to the people of Israel, that they might repent, that is, turn from these false gods and turn back to the true God. And see, God had made a commitment to rescue his people all the way back at the beginning of the Bible when sin first entered the picture. And so God raising up Elijah was another outworking of this rescue mission, of this commitment to his people going forth once again. It's a continuation of God's rescue. So think about the question we started with. Did Israel, in their rebellion, deserve to be rescued? No. But God rescues those who don't deserve it. Do we, in our rebellion, deserve to be rescued? No. But God rescues those who don't deserve it. When I worked with college students, each week I would start our main large group meeting with a quote. It's a pretty famous quote, been attributed to a few different people, used by many. 
But I would stand up and say, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace and that you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace and you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Many students year after year would say when they were graduating, Jonathan, I'm never gonna forget that quote. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. Israel was not so far gone they're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are not so far gone that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. God delights to rescue those who don't deserve it. We began this morning with the story of the family that was rescued while out at sea. The daughter was sick. The boat was broken down. Thankfully, the father of this family had the wherewithal to at least activate that beacon. He knew things were bad enough to where he needed to activate the beacon. Israel did not even have the wherewithal to activate the rescue beacon. It was God who looked down and saw his people, saw us, so rebellious, so far astray, that he himself initiated the rescue of his people. And he came after us. So he raises up Elijah, this guy like you and me, and this normal prophet, Elijah, was pointing further down the road to a perfect prophet who would come. And while Israel was plagued with all these rebellious kings like King Ahab, there would one day come a perfect king. And in all the ways that King Ahab failed to live as a faithful Israelite, this perfect and true and eternal king, Jesus Christ, would execute perfectly. This coming king would rescue his people from their sin. Instead of just warning them of the consequences, he would actually take those consequences upon them himself and pay for them in full as the substitute for his rebellious people. How can God rescue people who don't deserve it? Because ultimately he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and live perfectly as one who does deserve it and to then die on behalf of those who would never deserve it. And so when we make Christ the most central part of our lives, when we make him the most important guiding thing in our life, when we put our faith in him, we become hidden in the only one to ever deserve God's delight and pleasure, Jesus Christ. We become covered with the righteous, true, eternal king and all of his merit. This is how we're rescued. Won't you come to him this morning to be rescued? Let's pray.